The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So this was an experiment. I think maybe the first Buddhist studies course that was 11 weeks long. It was actually 12 weeks, but we missed a week. I forget, was it weather or was I sick? Weather. And the five faculties really lend themselves to this longer course. It's really one of the maps that encompasses really all the essential teachings of the Buddha, this map. And I don't know if you felt this way tonight in the meditation, but it really lines up well. Like, And I recommend that you do this for a while until the mind it's fluent because it can really help us understand like how the practice might be out of balance but just to notice how confidence or faith is operating not just like at the beginning but it's an ongoing force in the mind and to really like something that can be recognized this is relevant There's something to learn. There's a great poem I I wrote. um, I printed it up. This is a translation by, I think, Coleman Barks of a Rumi poem. The breezes at dawn have secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. This, I think, conveys a little bit of that faith energy, that confidence, right? It's sort of enlivening. And then we're willing to make the effort where the energy is there then to apply the mind. And so if it's here now, the application of mind is this willingness to open, to receive the moment, like a teacher. And it isn't, you know, the confusing thing, the thing that throws us off is the particular pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality of the moment. That's what throws us off. So we have a little of that faith energy we make, the mind makes the effort to connect, and then the, we drop in, we receive the moment, whatever, and it's not pleasant. And that triggers a lot of the habit energy of the mind. Like, well, let me fix this, and then I'll get back to the project of waking up. Let me address the unpleasantness. Or it's pleasant, that throws us off too, like, oh, I already found what I was looking for but we're not looking to avoid unpleasant, fix unpleasant, and we're not looking for pleasantness. Right? So that's the big, or ignore, neutrality. That's, that's mara, right? That's delusion. Is, and that's the easiest thing for the conditioned mind to fall back on, thinking that the project at hand, the project of living, is about the feeling, how pleasant or unpleasant the feeling is. The project at hand is learning, right? It's insight, is deepening of understanding. And so the first step, you know, right, is don't be confused by the feeling tone. It doesn't really matter what the particular feeling is in the moment, except that the conditioned mind thinks it matters whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So there's something to learn. There's a willingness to make effort to apply the mind to the project right? of connecting, receiving, being aware. Oh, this is being known, this is being known, and stabilizing in that ongoing activity. This is being known, that ongoing activity of mindful awareness. 
And because the mind isn't doing anything other than this is being known, this is being known, the mind stabilizes precisely because it's not chasing its likes and dislikes. That's samadhi. And then insight, wisdom arises from that. The mind sees what's here to see. It learns something from the teacher, the teacher of the present moment. And so tonight I thought we'd talk, you know, of course, about wisdom, the last of the five faculties, insight, discernment, deepening of understanding. The Buddha talks about this, you know, where the mind is waking up, seeing, collecting data about the way it is, the way it's always been but the mind was too superficial or too distracted to notice, too involved with its thoughts about things. That's why humility is a really good quality to uh, investigate. Just to drop in the question like, is this a mind that knows, not, not, not in the right sense of the word knows, right? Is this the mind that thinks it knows, no humility, or is this the mind? Is this a mind that knows that it doesn't know? Lots of humility. That's a, just an interesting question to drop in. Like another way we often say it in practice, like is the mind interested? Is the mind curious? Because a mind that is pretty sure it knows, it's not curious. It's not interested. I already know. It's like I can think about. I can plan my day tomorrow. I can consider whether I'm better than other people precisely because I think I know what's happening in my experience so I don't need to be mindfully aware. And being mindfully aware always has that quality of humility because the mind isn't fixed or dependent on an idea of what it thinks is happening because that's not mindfulness. That's thinking this is what's going on Without the awareness, that's just a thought being known. You know, like, just as an example, if we're feeling a lot of energetic sensations in a particular part of the body or more gross-level pain in the body or just a nice, light, buoyant feeling in the body. So just different, you know, qualities of sensation. Then the mind will naturally, the habit of the mind will naturally go, oh, this is how my sit is today. There's a lot of this feeling, this buoyancy or this pain in my knee or this sort of energetic contraction around my throat, around my neck. Oh, this is how it is. And when that thought arises in the mind, the wisdom doesn't recognize that that's just a thought. Then that thought substitutes for reality. Right? The attachment, the identification with the thought becomes the reality for the mind. And then the mind, that mind doesn't have any curiosity, isn't capable of insight or learning because it's become dependent on this sort of arrogant sense of knowing how it is, being sure that it's like this. The mind's no longer interested. We have that about politics arrogant certainty. We have that about our relationships with people, how we define people, our pets, our body, really everything, our practice, the prison of certainty, or that famous title of one of Krishnamurti's books. He was sort of a Advaita Vedanta teacher from not that long ago, maybe, get when he died, but maybe the 90s, 80s maybe, early 90s. Um, Freedom from the Known was one of his booklets that he wrote, a relatively small book, Freedom from the Known, because thinking that, you know, imagining that we know is a real oppressive state to be in. So I thought, you know, one way, there's sort of two levels of wisdom in terms of how the Buddha used it. The sort of primary or the foundational level of wisdom is just this 
sense of karma coming online as we move through life. So pre that level of wisdom, we basically feel like, uh, you know, either that I'm making things happen or God is punishing me or, you know, other people are. But we, the mind, uh, <clears throat> instead of understanding karma, the interdependent, like that things are lawful, but it's a complex lawfulness, conditionality. That, that's sort of the primary or fundamental level of wisdom that the mind gets. Like things are happening lawfully, but it's complex. There are many interdependent forces at play in how it is for me. But I'm a participant in a sense, right? There's still a sense of self at this level, a strong, confident sense of self. But now there's a sense of a willingness to participate in those conditional unfolding, as opposed to blaming or feeling like you're the master of your life. And if I, like there's some new agey stuff that is sort of, I think initially comes out of a sense of karma, but it's a misunderstanding of karma. So we don't have the advantage of really coming into alignment with karma, the conditional nature of everything, internal, external, all of life, all of reality, defined by conditionality, causes and conditions. These are different ways we, words we use to point to this truth. And then you see, it, it, the mind, the heart, becomes really pragmatic when it understands karma. That's how you know somebody, like yourself or anybody, has begun to uh, ground themselves in this level of wisdom, is they're very pragmatic. Because the relevant question is always, how should I be participating in the present moment? Not that you or I would say it in exactly that way, but it's always what's relevant. It doesn't matter if from some other point of view you've really gotten screwed. Somebody's been very unfair, taken advantage of you. The relevant point is always the same. How can I skillfully participate in the present moment? What way of being, what way of relating, what way of participating actually plant seeds for happiness. So again, this is all from a self point of view. A self who wants pleasantness and doesn't want unpleasantness. So it's not some highfalutin Buddhist emptiness point of view. And the Buddha taught this level. You know, the Buddha's teachings on dana, generosity that Laura talked about last week, and sila, morality, this deep, resonant commitment to not harming and sensing how harm, how um, oppression is, how we participate in cycles of suffering, that that commitment to dana, that commitment to sila, that commitment to take responsibility for our mind and the ecology of our mind, it's like, that's where we end up when we understand karma because that is how we get more pleasantness and less unpleasantness in our life. A lot of the pleasantness and unpleasantness that comes our way, it's not really up to us. It's already in motion because of many other forces that are at play. Like living in Minneapolis has some implications versus living in Syria or being a, someone who identifies as a male, has implications, as opposed to being somebody who identifies as a female or non-gender conforming or anything else, these different categories of difference. So there's a lot at play with um, you know, the forces and understanding this pragmatic level of studying like and then refining oh yeah being stingy doesn't lead to happiness taking advantage of other people 
actually doesn't lead to happiness, harming other people. Neglecting the heart or mind, like the ecology, the mood, the attitude, doesn't help. But taking responsibility, you know, just like it's really just an extension, like if you have a kitchen and you neglect it, or you have a bathroom and you neglect it, on and on and on, does that lead to happiness? No, it doesn't. Right? If you don't throw away the rotting food in your fridge or clean up after you prepare a meal, you're going to get lots of ants and you're going to have rodents and you're not going to be happy when you're fixing your meal. And that it's even more true with the quality of the heart and mind. In the same way that you know we take care of our home and take care of our clothes and take care of our relationships, that's the sila part, right? The morality part. It matters what kind of relationships, how I treat the people that I interact with, whether I'm stingy or generous, whether I value non-harming, take responsibility for non-harming, or don't think it's a big deal whether my actions harm others. But when we care about our life enough to pay attention to conditionality, cause and effect, then we... So this is the first level of wisdom, is we realize that we live in a conditional world, which means it's lawful, which means that even from a self-point of view, the causes for happiness can be mastered to the degree that I'm participating in this conditional unfolding. I'm still subject to tsunamis or volcanoes and you know, sort of other oppressive forces in culture and in the wider environment that I'm not, you know, that my attitude, my way of relating isn't really going to change. But in very important ways, I can participate in it. And really the deeper teachings on <clears throat> teachings in wisdom and emptiness, which I've been talking a long time now using uh, Guy Armstrong's book, really a beautiful book called Emptiness. I think it's a, a practical guide for meditators or something like that is the subtitle. Um, Guy Armstrong, if you don't know, is a, a pretty well-known teacher in our lineage inside meditation scene here in the West. And a guiding teacher at IMS and on the Teachers' Council over at Spirit Rock in Northern California. And so for the weekly practice groups, probably since August or September, I've been using that book as a complementary text. We're getting closer to the end of it now. So the teachings on emptiness or anatta, the not-self characteristic, the absence that all this activity, even the activity of karma, of cause and effect, of participating, of valuing dana, sila, bhavana, these are the sort of factors in setting emotion happiness on this relative level, being a person who doesn't want to suffer. So the deeper, like as we really appreciate that our participation matters because I want to be happy. So then I have some faith that paying attention matters because the more I pay attention, I can really learn what is dana, what is sila, what is bhavana, the development of the mind. Right. So dana is generosity, sila is this commitment to non-harming, bhavana is the development of the mind stabilization of the mind, really creating a beautiful mind or a beautiful heart. And so I I really pay attention because I need that stabilization of mindful awareness to really learn how to perfect or develop dana sila bhavana because I care about happiness and I don't want to be unhappy. And the more I study it, a couple of things happen, but basically it's like to really study the mind and the 
karma, the conditional unfolding of happiness and unhappiness, I have to sort of not be entangled to study the mind and to study like how dana works, how sila works, and what gets in the way right, of planting seeds for happiness. Because I can't be identified and be studying the lawful or conditional unfolding of happiness or unhappiness. So it's almost, it's almost by, not mistake, but it's almost by sort of a, a side effect of trying to be happy from a personal point of view by perfecting dana, sila, bhavana and really following that thread that the mind learns to be a quiet observer so it can get better at really, in a more subtle level, understanding the depth of dana, the depth of this non-harming, the depth of developing the mind. And it almost indirectly discovers the happiness of non-attachment, the happiness of letting go, letting nature be nature, and realizing that although there is this natural force that we've set in motion, being a somebody who's learned a thing or two about life, being generous works, being stingy doesn't work. Orienting around this deep value of non-harming really works, makes life work better. Being neglect, uh, Neglecting the value of non-harming ends up biting us in the butt all the time when we neglect it. Taking responsibility for the mind, really caretaking the mind, doing whatever we can to have a beautiful mind and heart, being like a master gardener of the mind and heart, as opposed to, you know, it's like letting in whatever we let in, you know, hanging out with people that have an effect on our mind. Like, well, well no, I don't, I don't like that effect, you know, or we go, you know, to a bar. I'm not saying all bars are have a negative influence on the mind, but some scenes have a real negative effect on our mind. And other scenes, other places we hang out, you know, we hang out with really happy, generous, kind, wise people, what has a really positive effect on us. I tell you, that's the easiest way to be happy is hang out with really wise and happy people. Right? And the, guaranteed, if you want to be unhappy, hang. I mean, we can't always avoid, and we can cause ourselves a lot of unhappiness not wanting to be around unhappy people when it's really our responsibility to show up. So I'm, it's not like we can use this teaching to justify like, sorry, Mom, I know you're dying, but I really can't be there. I mean, we do that sometimes. It's, it's actually can be the correct decision. Like, I'd like to be able to be there, but our relationship is so toxic that if I go there, I'm not going to help you and I'm not going to help me. I'm not proud of that. I'm not happy about that. It's just the most skillful thing to do, to be with you from a distance. So this... uh, it's just interesting to see, because I, I love this about the Buddhist teachings, how something that's so pragmatic of just being a self who doesn't want to suffer, and when the mind takes on that project with a lot of integrity and takes it to the nth degree, all the deeper insights just naturally come online. The mind lets go of self-centeredness because from a pragmatic, karmic point of view, it's what maximizes happiness. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's not even a matter of whether it's metaphysically true or not. What we know directly in our lived experience is it works. It pragmatically works to let go of a fixed sense of self because it really brings dana sila bhavana to perfection like the blossoming of non-greed or non-stinginess the blossoming of 
compassion and kindness, right? The opposite of thinking that harming others is fine. The blossoming of that beautiful mind just so happens that blossoming happens best when self-centeredness drops away, falls away. So it's that just following cause and effect, like that pragmatic investigation of what works. The mind stumbles on because it's paying attention and because attachment, identification, taking the project of being happy personally gets in the way of perfecting the project of being happy. Does that make sense? Right? And we, we know this is true. It's like even in a more mundane level, if, if I'm in relationship with another person, an intimate relationship with another person, and I really want it to work, right? I can't really be there in the relationship in a nimble, creative, and most importantly, learning mode when I really want it to work. I've got to decide. I can be really attached to wanting the relationship to work or I can be pragmatically engaged in a way that will lead to the relationship working if it can work. You can't have it both ways. If you want to be identified with being the person who really wants it to work, it's probably not going to work. (laughs) Right? But if you're willing to let go of that identity and apply the mind, apply itself to the causes that lead to the relationship working, which is what? What's the cause that leads not just to relationships working, but everything working? Learning. That's the cause. Learning through trial and error. Right? So it's not just like not making mistakes. It's like when mistakes are made, the mind learns from it. Don't do that again. And when there's a successful interaction with your lover, right? the mind learns, okay, what just happened? Oh yeah, that just happened. Okay, that works. Don't forget it. I mean, not even that we say that in the mind. It doesn't, all we, the, the awareness just needs to be there comprehending the conditional nature, which is the karma thing, again. So that's the most important thing. That first insight into karma is really the insight that lifts the mind out of helplessness. Some kind of idea that participation with awareness doesn't matter, isn't worth the effort. Being aware, mindfully aware, with some commitment committedness, some continuity, why why bother? Right? So understanding karma means I have something to do and I have every reason to do it. You know, more reason to do that than fill my life with TV or fill my life with this or with that. And it's empowering. Right, that the opposite of helplessness, like, oh, there's something to learn here. Some of you know, um, like one of the place, uh, one of the teachings that's synonymous with this deeper level of wisdom is the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And so we want to understand that it's like that. That willingness, that sort of enlivening and ennobling willingness to like take a good look at suffering because it's liberating. You see, it's the opposite of helplessness. If we really feel like being a suffering being is just like part of the territory of being a human being, we're not going to be interested in it. So, you know, it's like it's so often misunderstood by people who are just, you know, hearing the teachings for the first time or getting a superficial look at the teachings 
when they hear about this first noble truth that there is suffering, life is unsatisfactory, it's unreliable, it's uncertain. <clears throat> and we look and yeah, yeah, that's right. That's why I watch TV. You know, that's why I have a beer every night or, you know, fill my life with hobbies that I know aren't going to really matter in the end. But it's like, you know, fills my life up. It keeps me out of trouble. We can justify spending time in ways that we know when we're just even a little reflective, like it doesn't, it isn't going to really matter in the end. It doesn't mean that we pathologize those things, those hobbies or whatever, TV. It just means that the context of our life, and this is like, I find this still challenging, not challenging, but alive for me. Like, is there something beautiful and ennobling and enlivening that is here and now, that is available for our lives? What are we waiting for? I mean, that, that, that would be the obvious, like, what's in the way of that engagement? So the first noble truth is really a test. It's kind of a litmus test for ourselves. Like, are we interested in our suffering? Not the idea of suffering, but like in the moment. How do I know that this heart is not completely free, released, happy, alive, unburdened? And then to whatever degree, like so that that's sort of the operating curiosity like is there freedom and then to be really curious like i mean that i think you know if i had to just in a very quick way summarize the fruit of 35 or so years of practice it's like when i'm suffering there's almost always curiosity about it it's not that i don't suffer but i'm really curious because there's some deep intuition it doesn't have to be this way when my far heart feels burdened or tight or frayed or whatever the particular texture of the suffering might be. It's like, oh, that's interesting. There's some thread usually alive in the mind that what's the mind not understanding here? What's the mind not seeing here? What's the hook? What's going on here? And it really, you know, it, it, it uh, causes the mind to get very clear about the difference between unpleasantness and suffering. Like I mentioned earlier in the talk, how easy it is for us, like... Uh, to be thrown, the, the initial faith that we should open to the present moment, that there's something to learn, gets derailed over and over again by the force of habit around what's pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. So after making that mistake tens of thousands of times, the mind starts to get clear it's okay that it's really unpleasant. That's how it is when the mind, in this, you know, when there's a sensitive human being here and now with a life like this, that's how it is sometimes. The question isn't whether it's unpleasant or pleasant, the question is how is the mind relating and is that skillful? What's a skillful way to be relating to the pain or the pleasure or the neutrality? What's a skillful way, meaning what way of relating is liberating, is enlivening, is releasing of what can be released? So when we're dying, 
or we're around somebody we love who's dying, or when we are being praised or being loved in a way we want to be loved, seen and recognized in a way that we want to be seen and recognized. The interesting question, the the place of real curiosity is like, what to do with this experience? And see, this is where the deeper wisdom teaching comes in, the teaching on emptiness. To just let it be something being known without any remainder, without anything else. It's just this being known. Pleasantness being known, praise being known, blame being known, fame being known, disrepute being known, pleasure being known, pain being known, success being known failure being known. This is the deeper teaching that just because there's been a person who realized that I get to participate in the arising of suffering and happiness, and so the continuity of mindful awareness gets developed because it matters. It's a very useful tool to participating as a human being that wants happiness and doesn't want unhappiness. And then that just dawns on the mind, gradually, generally, very slowly, creeps in, gradually arises, to keep it really simple, to the nth degree simple, just this being known. It isn't, there, there isn't, doesn't need to be a deeper insight it's really the emptiness, that idea that you know there's so many Buddhist books written on about not self, the impersonal nature, no permanent self. It's just this gradual learning of how the mind, how the heart participates. It's to leave everything as it is. There's awareness, there's sensitivity, there's consciousness or whatever you want to call it, knowing whatever is arising in the moment. Right? And when that's left alone, that's what we call, from a Buddhist point of view, empty, because those moments are empty of anything but something being known. So even if some ancient habit has been triggered, some deep pattern of being defensive or some deep pattern of being ashamed at being good enough or whatever the deep pattern is that gets triggered because of certain circumstances. Somebody says something to you right in the right way when you're exhausted or whatever and that because that programming had been laid down you know, and reinforced over the years, then when the conditions are just right, it gets triggered. But when the mind has learned its lesson through so many mistakes and so many successes, it knows to recognize that as just something being known. It's not a, there's no part of the mind that is needing to do anything other, anything extra. So we say, oh, that mind's established an emptiness, right? And to the degree our mind knows that that there's nothing extra, right? That that sort of locks it in. When wisdom knows why there's no suffering, knows that keeping things simple really works. Right? Does that make sense? How the mind and so there's sort of like there's the freedom, and then there's the knowledge of how it works. It always comes back to karma, just at the more subtle level here. right? It's conditional. It's lawful. When there's a projection of a somebody that cares about the feeling of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality, then there's all these ripples of complications and fear and greed. And when that extra construction isn't there, all of those complications, all that tension that goes with a 
sort of operating with a fixed sense of self, all of that suffering falls away. It's really that simple. So because it's our last class and because there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of practice experience in the room, we have 20 minutes. Now it would be nice to hear from each other. You know, just talking about the five faculties generally or in particular, especially any reflections about wisdom and connecting the deepening of wisdom in your own heart with this evolutionary insight into karma, cause and effect, how to relate, what way of relating works, what ways of relating don't work, or anything that seems relevant from your practice. Yeah, Sharon, start us off. And also, of course, if you want, you can ask questions. That's exactly what I want. I'm struggling with that. It feels like a contrast. So I want to use a very practical example. So you wake up in the morning and you don't feel happy. So you can say, okay, I'm recognizing that feeling and that's okay. That's the one thing. But then then we've been talking a lot about inquiry and learning from inquiry. So that feels like two very different things. What questions do you ask and how do you do that staying with Okay, that's just where I am. Yeah, what the inquiry is really about is more in this training of, the, of, um, of humility and knowing that we may, the mind may not be seeing everything that's operating in the present moment. So like an inquiry might be, well, what else is here that can be known? What else is here that can be known? Is there any greed operating in the mind? Any fear operating in the mind? Any sort of subtle levels of control, any unconscious holding operating in the mind and body that can be acknowledged with kindness and wisdom, patience. Um, but that's, that's different than saying this is, just as, this is just what it is. Right, because sometimes it's like we say, oh yeah, this is just being known, but it still strongly seems like there's a suffering human being here, Right. So then if this is like you can use this as a sort of a general um, like borrowed wisdom. If there's the experience of being a suffering human being, then there should be the presumption that not everything is being seen. Right? So because there's only from the Buddhist uh, from the Buddhist point of view there's only one cause for suffering. Ignorance. Something's here, but not being clearly recognized, right? So that's such a useful thing that when we're when it really does seem like there's a person suffering, a heart, my heart, in fact, that's bound up, that's really tight, and I don't like it, then the question could be the inquiry question is, well, you know, what's not being seen? What's not being acknowledged? What what projection is being projected, but isn't being recognized as just a thought, just a concept being known. What assumption is not being recognized? Oh, that's just mental activity. You know, that just that capacity of the mind to put a spell or to construct a reality that goes unrecognized as something the mind has constructed. So that curiosity, so the inquiry is really a way to develop that clarity of mind that can see things as they are. Yeah, first Meredith and then Helen. Thank you. <clears throat> this um, has been really helpful tonight in the reading that we did. Um, I've been having a lot of trouble with a hip and it's been really painful off and on and um, kind of moving, trying to endure it, and, um, and realized in the reading, taking interest in it has helped move that a little bit. But today, um, I finally decided to call and say, yes, I need to have surgery and have a date set. And there was a great freedom that I felt in doing this, and now kind of the what has come to me, how can I live my life to the fullest? 
um, and live with this pain in such a way that it's not going to be limiting and causing the kind of just pain and, and, and limitation and wakefulness at night. And um, so it's going to be <laughs> kind of a challenge set in front of um, looking at this with a kind of a, a different way than I, I had been before. Yeah, and like you said right at the beginning of your sharing, that interest yeah. is the opposite of a fixed view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that this is going to go on forever. Yeah. 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 And yeah. it's the fixedness of that, because those thoughts are going to come up, that fear, oh, this is going to go on forever. But when the mind gets established, identified with that, has identity view, personal, personality view, then there's suffering. Because we don't need to worry about that thought coming. It's really what the mind does with that thought. Yeah, thanks, Meredith, for sharing that. Want to go next, Helen? I've been suffering quite a bit the last few days. Um, uh, my pet geese were shot. And what were shot? Pet geese. Mm. And um, my neighbor and I, we found out that he owns a little bit of my shoreline. So he's been planting trees on his, like, three feet of shoreline so he knows where the boundary is. And the goose was right on his property, but, you know, it's just a foot from me, basically. And I called the DNR. I, I, I got out at 11 o'clock at night, and I um, picked up the dead goose. I saw it die, but I wanted to give it time to to make sure it was dead. And I put it in a box, and I brought it in the garage and because I, I wanted evidence because I saw it bleeding out of its head. And uh, I called the DNR, and I called the cops the next day, and uh, the DNR said, yeah, it was hit in the head. And the only people who could possibly have done it would be somebody on the road or my neighbor. And um, then I, you know, I go, okay, there's going to be justice done here. I'm, I'm okay. But then today the forester of North Oaks called up and said, you know, he is such a, he called me and said, he's such a bully. We have, through the years, so many stories about him, and uh, I want to get this guy, basically. And it's just, I'm having a hard time, because the story just keeps going over and over, and I go, okay, it's an unpleasant thought being known. It's uh, unpleasant sensations being known. But at the same time, I feel like I have to kind of keep the story going to make sure that I do something. Why do you have to make sure you do something? Because I don't want him doing this anymore. Uh, The forester said there was five geese dumped off at the West Rec Center this weekend, too, and I think mine would have been one of them, but I put them in the garage. Right, but, but why, it's sort of like, why can't, your heart, your mind, your body, just do what it's going to do. And your investment is in being aware of how, what the personality, what it's doing, and observing with a lot of forgiveness and a lot of interest, whether how it's handling it, how it's relating to what happens, whether that's skillful or not. I've been pleasant to my neighbor. I mean, I haven't accused him. Right, right. But I'm just saying that, like, just generally, like, in these sticky places in our life, it's like the the emphasis is on learning, right, on insight, as opposed to living our life skillfully. You see, isn't that true that having to be skillful is really, it's really stressful? Because you can't figure it out. But what we can do, although we may not be able to guarantee that we're going to be skillful, like Raha raising her children, or you navigating the sticky situation with your neighbor, or somebody's you know, financial situation, another person with a relationship, what we can do is learn real time, moment by moment, whether the way the mind is relating is skillful or not. Because being unskillful in a moment always comes with tension. And being skillful in a moment always comes with the absence of tension. right? Because that's what that word means. Skillful means no reverberation. There's a sense of 
of no trace, right? It's easeful. That's why we have that word easeful. And when we're unskillful, because the mind's greedy, wants something to happen, or is aversive, you know, wants revenge, or whatever it might be, then there's suffering. And so that's, then we're just going to learn. So instead of like trying to live my life and be skillful, that desire doesn't help us be skillful. It's like Saidu Tejaniya, the article I sent out maybe yesterday. Hopefully some of you read, but you can read it this coming week. Then anyway, he has this great line about wisdom. He says, wisdom is always interested in the causes. Wisdom doesn't waste its time wanting to be skillful. Wisdom is that part of the mind that knows that's a waste of time wanting to be skillful. Study how the mind is relating and whether it's planting seeds of stress or planting seeds of release. That's what wisdom does. It's totally pragmatic because it's all in for the learning. There's always something to learn because every moment the mind is relating to the present moment. And that mind that's relating to the present moment is relating with habits that are skillful or habits that are unskillful every single moment, often mixed, right? But the, the wisdom can learn. Like to the degree that the mind is relating in an unskillful way, it can learn, honey, that doesn't help. That's unskillful the way the mind's relating or relating in a skillful way. Hey, this is really great. It's working, no trace, a lot of ease. And we really put ourselves like, so when we think about our practice, it's like somehow you're going to handle this. Life will go on. Choices will be made. And the question is not will you do it skillfully, but what can be learned from when you are skillful what can be distilled from that? And when you're not skillful, what can be distilled from that so that as you go forward, you become a different human being? The mind stream has been transformed, not just because you were skillful, but because you learned when you were skillful that that's skillful. And when you were unskillful, you learned that that's unskillful. And you distilled it so that it isn't just about the geese and about that neighbor. It's about the absence or presence of greed the absence or presence of ill will, the absence or presence of distractedness. Right? These seeds, the, the kind of, as it's said in the Buddhist tradition, the root poisons in the mind, or absence, you know, the skillful intentions of renunciation, letting go of compassion and kindness. These are the root positive intentions. When they're there, there's the absence of suffering. But letting go doesn't mean not doing anything. Letting go means letting go of control, right? Letting go of identification. So you might speak truth to power. You may, you know, do what you're afraid to do because it needs to be done. So letting go doesn't tell us what to do. That's what we distill over the many thousands of times observing the mind handling these difficult places to navigate. Yeah, thanks, Helen, for sharing that with us, and good luck with that. We have time for one or two more comments or sharings. Yeah. Thank you. So how does one avoid slipping into problem-solving when doing this inquiry? Because when problem-solving is happening, the awareness sees that problem-solving is happening, and it sees the way the mind is, whether the mind is identified with the problem-solving or not, and whether it's identified with it with greed or with aversion or with wisdom. So it just it's not about whether we should problem-solve or not, but whether in that moment when the mind is aware, it's skillful or not, whether it's a planting seeds of unhappiness or planting seeds of happiness. Okay. So I, I love the example of waking up in the morning and feeling... Um, unhappy. That's happened to me once or twice. Um, <laughs> um, 
And I mean, if I, 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 I'm, I'm clever enough to make myself think that I'm investigating, but I probably slip into problem solving. So, I mean, the example to borrow with on your example, I mean, I might think, okay, well, I'm being, um, greedy. Um, and if I can figure out how to get out of the greedy, I'll be okay. Would you describe that as problem solving? Well, the trouble is everything is often mixed, right? Where there's some, there's some skill in the mind and, and in the form of compassion, wanting to take care of ourselves, wanting to be skillful, and applying the mind to the present moment, right? But the, the identification with control and, and identification with success Right, that would be not so helpful. So that's the discerning process, and the the key is to step out of helplessness, which is this humility. There's something to learn, and I have all the resources here in the body and mind to do the learning. And it's really like we have to own the experience of suffering the feeling of being bound up or tension or constriction and the relative absence. And it's always about, this is why continuity of awareness is so important because it's the movement toward constriction or the movement toward the release of that constriction that helps us discern, helps the wisdom discern what kind of seeds are being planted. That's the distillation or the discernment. It's not enough to just sort of flash on a moment with awareness and then be caught up in thought, but it's some sustaining where we really feel the dynamic of things getting tight, things getting heavy, or things getting loose and open and free. And that's really, that's what I meant earlier on in the, in the discussion tonight about that empowerment of realizing, you know, and the Buddha made a big deal about independence and self-reliance. Like the, it said in the tradition, you know, the Buddha's already, or Manindaji is sort of, his, this is really a, Manindaji is one of the earlier teachers of Joseph Goldstein and several other of the early Western teachers, an Indian man who had been living in India and studied with a lot of the Burmese teachers like Mahasi Sayada. But he would say, in quoting something from the suttas, the Buddha's already done his work. Now it's our turn. We have to have the insight. We have to use our experience and distill sort of the lawfulness of it and to feel like we can do it. But we'll never get a... You know, it's, this is the great thing about samadhi because samadhi, in a way, that stable awareness... It's almost like makes things appear to be happening in slow motion. That's kind of the effect of deep samadhi. Because the mind is so still, so stable, you can really see the blow by blow unfolding of like planting seeds of stress or dropping the causes for stress and the opening up, the releasing of the body and mind. And then, then it sort of sinks in. Oh, this is how it works. This is the way of non-attachment, the way of non-clinging. Oh, this is how, this is how suffering arises. You know, where we see in such vivid color. I mean, I still remember one moment just when my mind was really stable. I, I saw just doubt coming in, you know, and coloring the mind, and the second guessing, and the complications, and the getting bound up, and and it was just so the imprint in my mind stream, like how that is suffering, was like a seismic shift. I, I'll never relate to that experience of doubt coming in in the same way. I mean, I still can get caught in doubt, but not for long because I just saw that it wasn't that it's impersonal and that it's a cause for suffering. It's like, how many times does the cat have to do something where something bad happens to it? 
you know, where we squirt it because it's scratching on the screen of the patio door. You know, only a couple times. If you get it just at the right moment, it really gets. Like, don't do that. But because the stability of awareness isn't there to see cause and effect with that vivid clarity, you know, we, we're kind of slowly distilling and slowly and, and often missing the point because the clarity, the stability of mind wasn't there. But when there's samadhi, this is why in Buddhism it's not an end in itself, but when there's samadhi, the insights just, when, they, when the mind sees something, it comes with a real impact on the mind because it saw it with more depth, more clarity. It doesn't need someone to tell us, oh, you shouldn't be attached. It saw, like, oh yeah, that, that doesn't help. I'm never going to do that again. But that's that's said with conviction, like I'm not going to do that again. It's like breaking addictions too, you know. We overeat and we know, oh God, I'm never going to do that again. And we over, you know, or I'm never going to, you know, we watch too much of a program. I'm never going to binge on a program again. And then we do it again. Or read your novel late and, oh, I'm not going to, my day is ruined, you know, I didn't get enough sleep. But when we really connect the dots, the mind actually stops doing those self-destructive patterns. But it just has to see it really vividly without any doubt. So we need to leave it here. Thanks, everyone. It's been really great being together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.